Turn, please, to Philippians in chapter 4, the very last verse of this letter, verse 23. Philippians 4 and verse 23. Once you've found that, uh, please pray with me. Father in heaven, I pray that you have uh, enjoyed our worship as we meditate, concentrate upon our Lord Jesus. And thus we pray in his name that you would receive us and receive our praise. And now we pray that you would speak to us in a way that brings you glory and is a blessing to us that we can uh, hear you and understand you and carry forth with all that you have for us. So I pray that you would work in us even now all that is well-pleasing in your sight, that we might be equipped. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Philippians in chapter 4, verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, Paul, ever the Presbyterian, ends his letter, like he does most, with a benediction. And as you know, I'm rather fond of them, uh, benedictions, not Presbyterians. Because they're a blessing. A blessing. The word benediction means, bene means good, diction, speak. It's a good word. And so at the very end of his letter, he pronounces really, as he writes, this blessing, this good word. Now, we bless one another all the time. I I try to pronounce, if you will, a blessing upon my children every day, or every time they leave at least the house, I always say to them, remember, I love you, and God is with you. Now, that good word, I hope they take with them throughout the course of the day. And so, in whatever circumstances they find themselves in, I trust they'll reflect back. I hope they'll reflect back upon that. And no matter what anybody else thinks of them, perhaps they'll think, oh, at least my dad loves me. But more importantly, yes, God is with me. When people get married, they have this sense of desiring a blessing, a benediction, if you will, from their families. What they really want is for their mom and dad to say, I agree with this Wedding, you have my blessing. This is my good word. Go, get married. And so when times are difficult in the course of that marriage, perhaps that couple can at least look back and say, well, at least our parents thought this was a good idea. Uh, they, they thought this was right to do. And, and you see, these blessings are to be a good word in such a way that will enable us, through difficult times most especially, to see clearly and to be able to persevere. Now, when God gives a blessing, when God gives a benediction, then it's all that much more special because God is saying, this is what I want you to carry with you. This is what I want you to receive from me. In fact, you probably know the great uh, blessing, the great benediction that, that uh, God gave to the Israelites, and we have it in Numbers chapter 6. You could probably quote this with me, but let me just read the text of it. Numbers chapter 6, verse 23. Uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You see, he's saying, I want you to speak this, Aaron and sons. That is, the priests will mediate this word, this good word, this benediction, this blessing. He says, I want want you to speak this to the people so they'll always carry it with them, so they'll always know this. And the benediction, the blessing that they received with the God would in fact bless them and he would keep them. 
And so if they're in the midst of a battle, if they're in the midst of a situation where their enemies are coming against them, or if they're in the midst of a famine or some economic difficulty, this blessing from God should come to their mind and help them. And for them to be able to say, no, God will bless us. God is the one. He has promised to keep us. So we don't need to worry. We don't need to be afraid. The Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. That is, his very presence will be with you. When the scripture speaks of the shining face of God, he's speaking of the blessing of God, the grace of God, the favor of God, the kindness of God. The very shining, radiance, presence of God is with you. So they needn't be afraid. They begin to think, God will keep us. God is with us. And and if they ever begin to think that they really don't deserve this blessing from God, which they don't, then they go on to hear that he will be gracious to them. That is, that this will be a free gift. It's not because of their merit or their goodness or their righteousness or any of that. It's simply that God has chosen them to be his, and thus he can say, I will bless you, I'll keep you, I'll make my face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. I will lift up my countenance upon you. That is, I will enter your situation and I'll give you peace. And then the Lord says this at the end, verse 27, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. You get the sense that this blessing, this benediction, is something that they're aware, and it's the very name of God, the very presence of God, the very character of God going with them, that great blessing, that great benediction. And now you see Paul is coming at the end of the letter, and he's giving them a similar kind of blessing, and that blessing is... The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, of course, when he begins by saying that grace will be with him, he's saying a mouthful. Like J.I. Packer says, that grace is, if not the, certainly one of the key words of Christianity. It's as if you could type that in your little computer, hit keyword, and back should come all this stuff about Christianity because it's so key in the context of our faith. In fact, the whole of our salvation um, is of grace. Uh, You know this verse 2 in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 8, the apostle writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The whole of our salvation is by grace... Through faith, it, that is, the whole of our salvation from beginning to end, is a gift of God. One author put it like this. He said, grace is the goodness of God shown to people who don't deserve it. Our friend Jerry Bridges puts it like this. He says, grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. See, grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't merit it. It's something that he gives. It's not influenced so much by who we are inherently, but simply by who he is as one who is gracious. It says something about him, not so much about us. It doesn't say that we're lovable. It doesn't say that we deserve this. It simply says that he's one who is kind. He's one who is loving. He's one who is gracious. He's one who's compassionate. He's one who's merciful. It all comes in our direction because of who he is. Because, you see, we don't deserve it. 
It isn't that we have something with which we can use to, to constrain God and compel Him to give us grace. Not at all. He freely gives it. In fact, it's not only that we don't deserve it, we actually deserve the opposite of this that he gives to us. We deserve hell, the scripture tells us, and yet he gives to us heaven. We deserve death, he gives to us life. We deserve to be estranged from him, he draws us to himself. You see, this is the very grace of God. And thus when Paul writes in Ephesians that it's by grace that we've been saved through faith and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God that is our salvation from beginning to end. We realize that this grace brings life to us spiritually when there's only death. That this grace comes to call us and to give us new life. All of that, the very grace that is to be with him. But he goes on to attach that to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And the reason, of course, that he does that is because it is the grace that comes through and because of Christ. In fact, the Lord Jesus is, is really the manifestation to us of God's kindness and grace that he comes. The Lord of glory who humbles himself and becomes a man, a servant, obedient even to death on a cross, is the very grace of God. You see, because the big dilemma, if you're thinking, and I know that you are, I can tell by your faces, by faith, the, um, I can tell that you're thinking, the big dilemma is, how is it that God can be so nice to us? How is it that God can be so kind to us? How is it that God can be so, so merciful to us and compassionate and, and good to us when we don't deserve it. If God is really just, if God is really holy, if God is really righteous, how is it that he can overlook all this evil in the world and in us? How can he overlook all of our disobedience? Anybody is, who is just needs to deal with that justly. Anyone who is just needs to exact a penalty for that kind of wrongdoing, that kind of sin. How can God overlook all the garbage that goes on in the lives of human beings and among us? How can he just wipe his hands of that and say, well, I'm just going to be kind to you? Well, of course, the Bible says God can be just and the justifier because of Christ. Because, and I hope, you know, my one great desire in all my life, is that everybody who ever comes to church here can say what I'm about to say. And you can do this in your sleep. That the cross of Christ demonstrates to us, manifests to us, the holiness of God and the love of God. That the cross of Christ shows us God's holiness as he pronounces judgment and pours out his wrath upon sin but it also shows to us his, his love because rather than pouring out his wrath, his judgment, his justice upon you and me, he pours it out on his own dear son. And so it shows it's his justice, but it also demonstrates his love. So he can be just, holy, sin is punished, and also be the justifier 
of those who trust in Christ, those for whom Christ has died, you see. And so, in Christ, there is grace. The very grace of God comes through Christ. And so when we talk about our salvation being by grace through faith, it's a gift of God, that very calling of God that begins to woo us and to begin to change our hearts, to give us ears so we can hear this message of the gospel is the grace of God. None of us are born with the ability, with the desire, with the willingness to follow God. That's sin. And so God in his graciousness comes to various ones of us, comes to us, and he gives to us ears spiritually that we may hear this word of the gospel. And so if you get the gospel, if you understand, that's a miracle of God, that's a work of God. And the Bible says that in his calling of us by his word and spirit, he changes our hearts. The technical word for that is regeneration. We're born again so that our inclinations are changed so we come to faith, so we'll believe, so that we'll trust, so that we'll follow after Christ. And not only that, this grace comes to us, you see, and brings forgiveness. And it brings reconciliation between us and God. And it pulls us, it adopts us into his family. And this great, wonderful grace also, the Bible says, works in us to make us holy, to sanctify us is the, is the, is the technical term. I, I actually like the word holify. But, but that's not a word, so we have to go with the dictionary and say sanctify. But I like holify. It, 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 it makes us, it works in us to produce in, in, in our thoughts and in our lives holiness. Because when Paul writes uh, to his son in the faith, Timothy, he puts it like this. He says, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. He says, the, when the grace of God appears, bringing this salvation, this very grace, this gift of God at work, his power to transform, enables us, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion. So it's at work in us. And thus, this very same grace that preserves us so that one day we'll meet Christ and even all the points of glorification to be with him forever. In glory, And so, you see, it's this very grace of God. So when Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, he's saying a lot. He's saying a lot, but he also uses this funny little phrase here, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Now, Paul isn't being really ooky-spooky here by saying, well, this is just for your little, wherever your spirit is. But he uses that expression to refer to Christians because we're people upon whom the Holy Spirit has come. We're people upon whom, who've been, people who have been born again by the Holy Spirit. And so, so when he refers to Christians in their Christianness, he often refers to us as spiritual people or our spirits. And so basically he's saying in this blessing, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That is this unmerited favor from God. May it always be with you. May you always know that. This, this, this kindness of God that comes to call you and give you life. May you always know that. May you always know that your spiritual life comes from him. May you always know that this transforming power is at work in you, thus enabling you. May you always know that, that he's there by his grace. Now notice something else. Turn to Philippians in chapter 1. Let's turn back a page. Philippians 1 and verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 2. Philippians 1, verse 2. 
Paul begins his letter by saying, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now keep your finger there and turn back to the verse we read earlier, chapter 4, verse 23. Paul writes, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. He starts out by saying, here's my intention in the context of this letter. I want grace to come to you. And then when he's done, he says, now may this grace be with you. Now, where do we get this grace between the two and the with? In his letter. He's saying, listen, I'm writing this letter so the very grace of God and his peace can come to you. And then at the end of this, I want it to stick so that when you finish this letter, the grace of God goes with you. Because you see, the word of God, which Paul was writing, the word of God is a means, the primary means, really, of God's grace to us. How do we receive his grace? How does the Holy Spirit bring the very grace of God to us? He brings it to us through the word of God. That's why uh, God could share with the people, uh, the Israelites, when they were traveling around the wilderness, he could, he could say, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Because you see, the word of God brings life. That's why Moses could write at the very end of Deuteronomy, uh, he, could, he said, these are not idle words for you, these words are your life. He's saying, listen, these words bring life. Hear them, meditate upon them, receive them, believe them, live them. That is your very life. Uh, I read in our call to worship, uh, I'm sure you were listening, Isaiah 55, where uh, very, a classic passage where God says, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's powerful, this very word of God. It has a determination. It has a purpose. And he says it's going to accomplish that because it's strong, because it's, it's powerful. Uh, it is, in fact, my very word. You might remember when Paul was meeting last with the elders in Ephesus, and we have this in Acts chapter 20, that he was meeting with these elders, and here's what he said to them. And he said, and now I commend to you God and the word of his grace, which, the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He's saying, this word that I'm giving you and that I'm commending to you is the word of his grace. And this word of grace is able uh, to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Saying this is a powerful word, this word of God. And we know that it's powerful. Uh, Paul writes in Romans that the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes. It's the power of God, this gospel, this word. Paul writes in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That is, as we hear the word of Christ, it works in us belief. It works in us faith. In fact, the author of Hebrews puts it very dramatically like this in Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 12. He says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, 
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He said, listen, this word that comes from God is alive and it goes right into the innermost beings of your soul and it's the very light of God sort of exposes all that's there. You can't hide from it. It's alive, this very word of God. Many of you know the, reason, the way that I remind myself that the Bible is the word of God is I never put anything on my Bible because it's alive. I wouldn't put anything on a person sitting on my desk, so I don't put anything on my Bible because just to remind me that it's alive. It's a living, powerful word. You don't have to follow that practice, by the way. That's a little weird thing. But um, <laughs> I'm going to my office. There's 20 books on my desk, and I have four Bibles open. They'll all be on top. That's just the way it is. And um, if I come to your house and you have one on the bottom while you're not looking, I'll move it. Um, <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just that that's okay. Um, but it's alive, you see, this living word of God. When we read the Bible, we're not reading the newspaper. We're not reading a novel. We're not even reading a good Christian book. We're reading the very word of God. And through its livingness, because of the power of God, we receive grace that brings life and help and forgiveness and power to persevere. You see, that's what's happening as we read the Word of God. Peter puts it like this in 1 Peter in chapter 1, verse 23. He says, Since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. He said, it's this word of God that's come to you by the spirit of God that's given you life, that's worked in you. And he says, the grass withers and the flowers, flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So here's what Paul is saying. In the midst of this letter to the Philippians, between verse 2 in verse 23 of chapter 4, he's saying, I want grace to come to you. And then when you're done, I want this grace that has come to you by the word of God and spirit. I want that grace to now stick and I want it to go with you. Okay? Now we've been in Philippians since March, I think. Maybe February. can't remember. A while. And so my question as I came to this verse is, what is the grace that's come to us? Now, I was tempted to then just re-preach it, but I, I don't think I'm going to do that. Uh, but what grace has come to us that gives us life, that empowers us, that readies us for whatever situations are going to come? What, what free gift do we receive that we know we receive from God as we've read through this? And I think, as I come to answer that question, and you can answer it various ways, and I haven't much time, but when you think about that question, uh, the point that first comes to my mind that sets up everything else is that as Paul's writing to these people, he's telling them that Christ is everything. It's interesting to me, and I, you know, Bible nerds uh, count words and stuff, but there's only 82, three verses in Philippians 40 times in those 80 verses, about every other one, Paul mentions Jesus directly. I mean, it's soaked with expressions of the person of Christ. Because you see, for Paul, Christ is everything. Christ is us all in all. Just go back, just real quickly. 
chapter 1, verse 1. I won't read it all, but chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You see, Paul identifies, defines himself by his relationship with Christ. How do you define yourself? Well, people say, who are you? Do you tell them what you do for a living, who you're married to, how many children you have, where you live? How do you define yourself? What's the essence of you? Do you give you a political party? What is it that defines you? Paul defines himself by his relationship with Christ, and that relationship is one where he's a bondservant of Christ, a servant of Christ. He says, I view Christ as my master. So that whatever he's thinking, I want to think. Whatever he's saying, I want to say. Whatever he's doing, I want to do. I, I see him as my, as my master. I want to please him in every way. And then he goes on to speak to them, and he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. He's saying, uh, saint is, is simply means holy ones, really. And he isn't referring to any special class of Christians. He's referring to all of them, all who have been made holy, set apart by God for his special salvation blessing, to all the saints in Christ Jesus. He's saying your life is defined by your relationship to Christ too. He's everything to you. He's the one who has made you who you are, a saint, a holy one, one who is accepted by God. And Paul tells them uh, that even, his, even how he marks time, uh, in verse 6, he says, and I'm sure of this, that he will begin a good work and you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus the day of Christ Jesus. He's saying that's what we're really looking forward to. Time is marked out. Even our days are numbered according to this day of Christ Jesus. He speaks of his own emotions. He says, for God is my witness how I yearn for you all with, with the affections of Christ Jesus in verse 8. He's saying, listen, I even want my emotions, my affections to be the same as Jesus. Whatever he loves, I want to love. Whatever he hates, I want to hate. And he has affection for you. So with his affection, I love you. He defines his situation as related to Christ. In verse 13, he speaks of his chains or his bonds, his imprisonment for Christ. He's saying, I'm, I'm here because of Christ. But you then have the feeling that if he were at the grocery store, he would say, I'm here because of Christ, that Christ was his all in all. And the only thing that mattered to him was that Christ would be glorified. Notice in verse 18, he said, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. He's saying, I don't care that I'm in prison. I don't care that my reputation is being destroyed. All I care about is the fact that Christ is being preached, and so that's really good. And then he really nails it in verse 20. He says, um, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, listen, if I'm to live on, and frankly, I just assume not, because if then I don't, I get to go be with him, which is my heart's desire anyway. But if I, begin, if I live on, my whole life is simply that Christ be honored by my life. And if I'm living, I want him to be honored. If I'm dying, I want him to be honored. If I'm alive or dead, because Christ is everything uh, to me. He tells them, I want you to pattern your life in chapter 2 after the very life of Christ. His humble, sacrificial love is to be true of them as it was to be true of Paul. And we could go on. But, but the point is that everything in this letter is all saturated with Christ. You can't read this letter. And I would urge you this week, I did this a number of times this week, to sit down, it takes about 18 minutes at the most, and read out loud this letter to the Philippians. This is wonderful. And at the end, if somebody pushed you and what you had read just came out. You know what would come out? 
Jesus. Because you'll read Jesus over and over and over again. And it'll just be there. And so it's saturated with Christ. And he's saying, now I want the grace that comes from this Christ, who's our all in all, to be with you. And you know, as we read through this book, you know what grace, at least for me, that I begin to receive, that I begin to walk with, number one, and I'll do these very quickly, number one is it just flat-out assurance of my salvation. I can't read this through and not leave with a greater confidence somehow that God has filled me with this assurance because I realize from chapter 3 and verse, uh, verses 8 through 10 that it's His righteousness, not mine. I mean, it's so clear. Paul said, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Whew. You see, we read that and we go, yes. Regardless of the situation I'm in as a believer in Christ, I belong to God. And He receives me to Himself, not because of my rightness, but because I stand in Christ. Therefore, I know at any moment in time, I can really pray. Every American thinks they pray, but they really don't. Because how is God going to receive anyone and hear them? What name shall we use to be heard by God? I always like it if I have to meet an intimidating person that I don't know. I try to find somebody who knows both me and them. That way I can call them and say, hey, I'm George's friend. And then they don't receive me as Dinky Bill. They receive me as George. You go, okay. You see, it's a wonderful little trick. Uh, but this is no trick, because this is real. Jesus has come in my name. And the Lord, the God receives us, you see, not on the basis of our rightness, but on the basis of His. And I think, oh, yes. And at any moment in time, you see, I realize, regardless of the circumstance going on, that I really do belong to God because it's His righteousness. That, you see, is grace. That's the grace that comes to us by way of His Word. And I'm telling you this, if I'm not reading this often, I forget it. It just seems to, to fade in my mind. But as we read God's Word and listen to Him speak to us, it's not your righteousness, it's Christ's. That's grace coming to us. You see, what I, what I find, the grace I find here is tremendous purpose in life. Because no matter what we're doing, no matter what we have, no matter how important we are with anybody or with any person, here's a man in prison, despised by many, who has great purpose in his life. And he's telling them they have great purpose. Because you see, their purpose, defined in verse 7, he says that it's right for me to feel this way about you, chapter 1, uh, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You see, even in prison, he had this great purpose to defend the gospel and to confirm it. That is, with his very life, show that it's true. And so you see, when, when you're sick, what's the purpose of your life that day? Even though you can't go to work, you can't help anybody, can't talk to anybody, nobody wants to look at you, uh, your purpose is to confirm the gospel by living as a forgiven, dependent upon God person. 
in the midst of other difficulties, you see. That's what we do. We confirm, we defend the gospel. He puts it like this in chapter 2. He says that, um, do all, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. What a great purpose. Your purpose and mine is to shine. No matter how dingy and dark the place is, no matter how difficult the circumstance and situation, no matter how much is against us, life is never vain for the Christian. It's always meaningful because we're shining for Christ. We're defending and confirming the gospel. And not only that, you see, but as I read through this, I get a sense of the strengthening power of God, the transforming power of God. Because he's telling me some very difficult things here. But he's saying in chapter 2, he says, listen, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the, in the Spirit, he's saying, listen, if Christ is really involved with us, here's how I want you to live. And so this is what you should expect, to be transformed like this, to be someone who, who considers the interests of others more than his own, to be humble in the face of the needs of others and to help them so that you can model right after Christ. And you see, you read that and you feel inadequate. I feel inadequate at that. But then I begin to think, it's not my rightness, but his. Oh, work that in me. And then I think back in the prayer we've been praying in, in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, that ends saying that we'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. Fill me with the fruit that which grows out of the very righteousness of Christ in me. So I'm assured, and I have purpose, and there's power, and of course you can't forget, I'm into peace in a minute, the peace that comes to us. He says, listen, if you're in difficulty, because it's not your righteousness, it's his, you have a standing with him, go in the name of Christ, and his peace will guard you. And be content because regardless of the situation and circumstance, you know that you belong to him because it's not your rightness, it's his. And his grace then comes and says, relax, be still, and know that I'm God. I will strengthen you that you might persevere and endure. And I read that and I say, yes. And he says, not only will I bring you peace and supply you with contentment, but I'll also be your provision and your supply because all of your needs will be met through Christ Jesus. And then he ends by saying, now after I've told you all that, rejoice. And you think, okay. What's not to rejoice about in that kind of a context, with that kind of a word? And so he says, come to my word. And now he says, I want this grace that comes to you through my word to stay with you. Now this morning, we have opportunity not only for this means of grace by way of God's word, but this means of grace by way of this sacrament that Jesus has given to us. They work similarly in the sense that neither is by magic, both informed and come through us by the word of God. We wouldn't know what this sacrament meant unless we had been told. And he told us so we would know what it means. So in knowing what it means, then we can hear his voice in the sacrament 
and have our faith increased and thus receive grace. Because you see, the grace that comes through us by the word of Christ in his word is the grace that comes to us in the sacrament because they both point us to Jesus. They both have our attention, our attention focused upon him. Because if you're a Christian, you can't look at this table without hearing this, that on the night in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And then in the same manner also he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. That is, think about me when you do this. And what do we think about when we think about Jesus? We think about the cross. We think about the holiness of God being manifested. We think about the love of God being demonstrated. And we think about the wonderful grace that enables us to look at the cross and to get it, to understand it, and to say, yes, that's my hope. I believe that. I cling to that. If that's not true, I'm lost. If that's not true, I'm sunk. If that's not true, I'm worse than sunk. I'm condemned. But I get it. And you see, as we begin to, to think upon that, then we realize it is his righteousness, not mine. And my purpose is to bring him glory and to defend and confirm the gospel with my very life. What could be better than that? What could be more significant than that in the course of my own life? And I realize, of course, that there's power that comes that enables me then to walk with him and to even shudder to think live in humility as he lived in humility. And then, of course, the peace that comes by saying, yes, I belong to him. And the contentment that comes that says, yes, he orders my steps and he supplies every need and we find our joy in him. Thus, you see, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, even as we look upon this table, we realize that Christ is our all in all. And so I pray that you would set apart this bread and juice. It will always be bread and juice, but I pray that you would set it apart in the sense that it becomes special to us right now. For as we touch it, as we smell it, as we eat it, that, Father, it will remind us of Christ, and that our minds and hearts and the focus of our attention will be upon him, and that we, as our forebearers put it, would feed on him in our hearts by faith. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would meet us here. You would confirm to us your word. Grant to us all that we need for life and for godliness. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I, remember, I pray that you would seal to us all the benefits that you have graciously given to us in our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may be glorified as the great giver of every good and perfect gift. 
and that our very lives would defend and confirm this wonderful gospel as we live out this grace that is with us by our Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you there are elders available to pray in the office area. Please take advantage of, of that situation for you. Uh, the response to our benediction is to sing, as we do on Communion Sundays, the doxology, which is a dox. It's a great praise to the glory of God. So please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's sing.